Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 91 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and my dear friend Nick Miller's new book, Dance Like Everybody's Watching, is a proper joy and an excellent Christmas gift. Yeah, shameless plug. Deal with it. I'm Hannah Zanlevy and I've lost my diary, so I'm sorry if I forgot your birthday. You didn't, it's all right. (laughs) And I'm Jen Offord and I want a demon. What would your demon be? It'd be a weasel. A weasel? Mm -hmm. Okay. Pantelemon's a kind of weasel. Well, yes, he is from the Mustelid family, correct. Anyone who hasn't read or isn't watching his dark materials is, is confused. Later on, I speak to Anna Coslett about her book, Your Life As I Knew It, which describes life raising a severely autistic son. We chat to personal finance expert and generally delightful human, Vic Slayton, about snapping up a bargain, or three. In Journey Off the Blocks, after announcing her retirement last week, I'm paying tribute to Nicola Adams. And we're absolutely buzzing <laughs> about this week's Dunleavy Does Disaster, The Swarm. Bees! Thousands of them! <laughs> But first, general election wacky races, the baffling new good guys, and more exciting telly for Hannah. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue and sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we splash around in the news like the Prime Minister trying to mop up water. He just can't do anything, can he? It is really alarming to see that he's clearly never used a mop before. Like, never. That and, like, not being able to place a wreath the right way up. So, yeah, we've just had Remembrance Sunday, which I can only assume featured a mass turning over in graves as those who fought for our country discovered what's been done to it, quite often in their name. And, yeah, election campaigns across the board have got off to what can only be described as a fucking weird start, as it appears the run-up to December the 12th is less a bid to be elected and more a race for the title Hold My Beer 2019. And I tell you what, there are already some very solid contenders for that gong. Former Labour MP Ian Austin had a too-hot-to-handle take as he urged the electorate not to vote racist Labour, but instead vote Conservative. Mm. Sorry, sorry, what now? Labour absolutely has its problems, but surely a party whose leader used the line Piccaninnies with watermelon smiles about the people of Africa also has um, issues with racism, to put it mildly. But wait, here's chairman of the Conservative Party, James Cleverley. What, what's that, James? Hold your beer? Dreaming the big dream and making the impossible possible, cleverly managed to make Piers Morgan look like the good guy when he was grilled on Good Morning Britain about the fact that the Tories had doctored a GMB interview with Labour's Keir Starmer to make Starmer appear flummoxed by a key question about Brexit. To be fair, Starmer hadn't really covered himself in glory in that interview, but the Tories' backfiring fake news made that almost immaterial. Turns out cleverly had a few more beers too, right, Jen? That's right. Sky News presenter Kay Burley was fucked off last week after Cleverly. <laughs> she was livid, wasn't she? She was fuming. After Cleverly, who had apparently said he would talk on the programme, then decided not to, despite apparently being in the studio 15 feet away from her or whatever. Think you're confused? Imagine how the empty chair Burley then directed her barrage of questions at felt. Sadness in its eyes. I would have thought so. There was quite a lot of sadness in her eyes. Well, not really sadness, just like raging rage. (laughs) Burley said she wanted to ask cleverly about the Telegraph front page last week, on which Boris Johnson compared Jeremy Corbyn to Stalin and his persecution of the Kulaks. Jacob Rees-Mogg's implication on LBC Radio, not really an implication, he sort of said it, that victims of the Grenfell disaster met their fate through stupidity 
I mean, come on, you'd absolutely ignore the advice of a professional if you were in their shoes, right? Jesus. Why on earth is he still a member of the Cabinet? Burley wanted to ask cleverly. It's a weird feeling to agree with Kay Burley, but that is a fair question. Yep. She'd wanted to ask about Alan Cairns, former Welsh Secretary, who was forced to stand down last week as a row escalated over whether or not he knew of the involvement of a former aide in causing the collapse of a rape trial when he'd endorsed him as a candidate for the Welsh Assembly. She'd wanted to ask about Tory officials' costing of Labour policies, and we'll come back to that, about the failure of the government to publish the report about Russian interference in the 2016 EU referendum, about the suggestion of Boris Johnson that Corbyn was demonising billionaires and just how classy that actually looks. Back to that figure the Tories have been costing Labour's policies at. It's £1.2 trillion, apparently. That's quite a lot of money. It is quite a lot of money. That is if you top up the cost of them doing everything they've ever mentioned rather than wait for the manifesto setting out exactly what's on the table. Didn't seem that fair to be banding that about. Another Sky News presenter, Sophie Ridge, argued with Minister of State for Business, Energy and Clean Growth, Kwasi Kwarteng, on Sunday. Nope, I don't know who he is either. But I suppose that's what happens when you expel all of the experienced MPs in your party. (laughs) Kwarteng, it appeared, was rather less au fait with the costings of his own party's policies. Not his job to know them, he reckoned. Now, Kwarteng's been on the TV quite a lot recently and he is very much a useful idiot. He's the guy that was on Question Time that said lots of, well, some people are saying that this is, <laughs> and you're like, oh my God, that's straight up Trump. It's the greatest person on earth. Yeah. <laughs> Did you see the Ridge interview? To be honest, I've tried to check out a bit from it, but it keeps coming at me. It's like bees. It's really, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's very awkward. She's just like, so what, what are yours going to cost? He's like, uh... <laughs> Well, well, we've said we're going to invest this much. She's like, no, no, how much is all of it? And he's like, we've said we're going to invest this much. And she's like, no, no. And he's basically, it's not, that's not my job. <laughs> she's like, it really is. I mean, it's still the worst possible start to an election. Also in the Tory corner, Nick Conrad's selection as a Tory candidate in the safe Conservative seat of Broadland in Norfolk is a massive middle finger to women. As the Tories have gone and picked a man who once said women should keep the knickers on to avoid rape. That's not even the worst, most nonsensical take on sexual assault that he has voiced. Not thought, but actually voiced. It's a great look just at the time a leaked Cabinet Office report reveals the justice system is systematically failing rape victims due to invasive disclosure demands, a lower likelihood of securing a conviction and lengthy delays in cases being brought to court. Boris Johnson has since stressed that Conrad's comments may have been made a long time ago, but are completely unacceptable. So is Conrad still a Tory candidate? Of course he fucking is. It's almost like the Tories have an underlying attitude that's habitually imperialist, misogynistic and racist. The perfect time for a decent opposition to step up. Yeah. Indeed, because if all that sounds like Jezza et al are in front of the goal and the Tory party's keeper and defence are literally dozing 10 metres wide of the posts, Labour might have been a bit embarrassed when Deputy Leader Tom Watson stood down last week. In a letter to Corbyn, Watson, who waited until the election campaign had started to make his announcement, said the decision was for personal, not political reasons, before going on to plug his forthcoming book on downsizing. <laughs> I'm sure Jeremy will be reading. It's going to be this Christmas document. Absolutely. It? Meanwhile, male members of the harder left end of the party spectrum continue to do a sterling job in advertising the party by trolling anyone on Twitter who disagrees with them. Good job, lads. It's a very electable look. Yeah, Aaron Bastani fucking twat that he is telling Aisha Hazarika 
to leave the party made me incandescent at the weekend. Who the fuck are you, mate? It's such a bad look when yeah. me, you know, a woman from a working class family, her, a, a woman of colour, are constantly told, well, why don't you fuck off to the Lib Dems by just middle class mouthy twats. I tried to stand up for her and I was told variously, all by men, I would like to add, all by men replying to my tweets, I was told variously that I had never experienced financial difficulties. This is by people who do not know me, know nothing about my background. I can tell you that's categorically untrue. But anyway, why not just say that to a stranger? I hate disabled people. They got you on that one, Jeremy. Absolutely. (laughs) And, And I endorse war criminals. What the fuckity fuck? Seriously. I know. It's like the Labour Party took a decision that it was going to let men talk for women, it was going to let middle-class people talk for working-class people, and it was going to let like white people talk for people of colour. And I just wonder where I was when that decision was taken, because I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have voted for it. How's it working out for him? Yeah. I mean, it's just uh, the whole the whole start of this election is just appalling. I mean, it's just and and it's so fucking Trumpian, you know, the doctored videos, the ridiculous statements that aren't true because it doesn't matter. That's the worrying thing, though, isn't Mm. it? It's so Trumpian. But who the fuck is president of the United States? Yeah, exactly. And Boris Johnson's tipping the polls. Now, talking to Trump, what's going on with his impeachment? I hear you ask. Hannah, what's going on with Trump's impeachment? Funny you should ask. Because today marks the start of the public hearings portion of the House Intelligence Committee's investigation. And by today, I mean for you people listening, it is literally today. For us, it will be Wednesday. And in a stroke of luck, which has been in somewhat short supply this decade, (laughs) the British General Election's closing of Parliament means proceedings are going to be shown in full on the BBC Parliament channel, which is more than earning its portion of the licence fee this year. See you later. Rest of my plans for the week. As of Wednesday, you're not getting dressed or leaving the house? No. Okay. On Wednesday, the aforementioned House Intelligence Committee will hear from William Taylor. Incidentally, that was my granddad's name. If you want to go and steal my identity. Um, the US <laughs> Done. Is... <laughs> Please take it off my hands. It's not doing well for me. The US is top diplomat in the Ukraine. Not my granddad. And also the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State, George Kent. And on Friday, it's the turn of Marie Jovanovich, America's one-time ambassador to the Ukraine, who was called back to the US earlier this year after what's been described as, and I quote, a campaign to discredit her by Trump's lawyer and neighbour your parents warn you never to speak to, Rudolph Giuliani. (laughs) Oh, Rudy, what happened? (laughs) All three have already testified that Trump and his inner circle were involved in an effort to force Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky to open investigations into Democratic primary hopeful and former Vice President Joe Biden and into the 2016 US election in return for military aid at a meeting at the White House. I mean, personally, I think he could have saved himself the effort and just sent someone to write down some (laughs) of the shit Joe Biden actually says. But here we are. Obviously, there's still a long way to go in terms of removing Trump from power. But hey, it's a start. It is a start. More news as it very much happens. It really does just keep happening, doesn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. More news next time. (laughs) Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we stick two fingers up to the patriarchy, which is, in 2019, still insisting on sticking two fingers up women to see if they're virgins. I shit you not. A lot of stuff we cover in Bush Telegraph and Sexism of the Week gives me the white hot rages, but this has got me hot and hopping. 
And while this kind of tomshittery has been going on since time immemorial, it's back in the news because in a slice of solid outrage bait, rapper T.I. announced during a radio interview that he takes his 18-year-old daughter, Deja, on an annual trip to the gynaecologist to, and I quote, check her hymen is still intact. Right, man involved in Robin Thicke's blurred lines turns out to be misogynistic dickbag is about as surprising as picking up a dog poo and finding it stinks of shit. But T.I.'s lack of respect for his daughter, and I'm going to take a massive punt here and say, oh, you know, women in general, is a micro in a macrocosm of virginity testing going on across the globe. And it is a dangerous practice with sometimes fatal consequences. Let's start with some basic science. Virginity is not a medical term. It's not something that can be medically proven to exist. Therefore, even before taking into account that the hymen can be and is broken in all sorts of non-sexual ways, it is not proof either way that a girl or a woman is a virgin. A little louder for those at the back, there is no medical exam to prove whether a woman or indeed a man is a virgin. Horse riding, right? You can break it horse riding. Put in a tampon. Yep. Solid point. Apparently, you can also have sex and still have a hymen. All of these things, because just again, there is no medical exam (laughs) to prove whether a woman or a man is a virgin. And yet, the patriarchal, misogynist obsession with a woman's purity, whether for religious or cultural reasons, means this nonsense persists. The penalty for failing a virginity test can be steep. In Indonesia, it's a routine test used to determine whether a woman is fit to join the police force. In Afghanistan, where premarital sex is a crime, until 2018, that is last year, the law stated that women and girls could be jailed for up to three months for failing the virginity test. In some extreme cases, young women who have failed virginity tests have taken their own lives or been murdered by their own family members for violating their family's honour. Cairo, India, Iraq and Afghanistan have, over the last decade, brought in regulations or in some cases just outlawed virginity testing. And yet, in the US... There is no federal or state legislation banning it, meaning that T.I. can just keep doing that as long as his daughter consents. And consent can quite easily be coerced. So anyone thinking this horrific, invasive, unscientific, outdated, controlling practice shows that a father is looking after his daughter. And trust me, this came up a terrifying amount in the Twitter responses to the T.I. news is a misogynistic prick and then some. Now, that is not my most eloquent line, but it's really fucking heartfelt. I would highly recommend taking 10 minutes out to read the in-depth investigation done by Marie Claire and the Fuller Project, which you'll find online, but it will leave you raging. I mean, it's a form of abuse, isn't it? I think so, yeah. It's coercive control. At its very least, it's coercive control. She's 18, for But you're actually giving permission for someone to essentially sexually assault your daughter? I mean, because presumably this has been going on for a while. Yeah. Before she was 18. Yeah. Since she so you're was taking, like, your 15-year-old, 14, 15, 16-year-old daughter to the doctor or wherever it is that you're going. Every day after her birthday. Yeah. Happy uh, birthday. Uh, to have something put inside her. Yep. Invasively. And she has no say in whether or not this happens to her. She has say. She has to give consent. But he is very much demanding she give consent. Well, so I- you're right. Up until the age of 18, that's kind of a bit flexible anyway, isn't it? In consent in that sense. I mean, yes, you would have you would have to give consent, but in the same way that if your parents said... You're doing it. You're doing it, or you get out of my fucking house. Or, you yeah. know, I mean, the, your options are somewhat she limited. She shouldn't even be going to a gynaecologist until you know, she started find, having sex. I sometimes think that, you know, my dad was not great in a lot of ways, but in a lot of ways he was great. And one of the things that he did not give a fuck about 
was our love lives. He was that, that's just something I don't want to think about, love. Just don't come back pregnant or with a disease. And that was it. Hello, Hannah here. Just wanted to let you know that if you like what we do, you can help us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes. It really does help, especially if you give us five stars. Did that sound threatening enough? Give us five stars. Hello, Hannah here. I'm joined on the phone by Anna Coslett, who has written a book, Your Life As I Knew It, which she is currently crowdfunding on the Unbound website, which is about raising a child with severe autism. Thank you for joining us, Anna. I know your time is probably really pressed. (laughs) Well, um, it it isn't so much these days. My son eventually had to go into full-time care and the book is also about that and to prepare families for that. He was 15, six foot tall and very strong when he finally had to be looked after by people taller and stronger than myself. Probably the best place to start is if I could ask you, when were you first told that your son Hugh was autistic? Well, um, it was a very, very long process and I hope families never have to go through the eight diagnostic interviews that we went through or I went through with Hugh. His father was absent a lot. He worked in the the TV industry and uh, wasn't around for a lot of the interviews that we went through. There wasn't an autism expert available in Wales and eventually we had to come down to the National Autistic Society's Elliott House where diagnoses are given So that was the ninth interview when he was finally diagnosed as fairly severely autistic. And how old was he then? Four and a half, nearly. But he was showing symptoms at three. Um, He failed his three-year developmental test. And I was in denial for a long time, hoping that it was a hearing problem. We had hearing tests as well as um, interviews with a whole range of of specialists. What I would say is that these, all of these interviews would have been helped if I'd written out beforehand the answers to the questions I was asked by each separate professional because they were just repeated over yeah. and over again and I would have written them all out and just handed them to the new person who was interviewing me saying this is what the pregnancy was like, this is what his first few months were like, these are the early signs that eventually uh, persuaded us that um, autism was probably the problem. At the time, I mean, we're going back to mid-90s, so there was a lot of assumptions around autism. He was always a very cuddly boy, and we had been told that autism involved being aloof and not wanting to be touched. He, he was able to engage uh, with us, but he, his speech was delayed. And this is why I thought it was um, a hearing problem. But he also had other symptoms, which when I looked back, I could see were autism related. Like he had a very heavy thirst. And this is something not a lot of people know, but many children with autism drink pints, absolute pints. It was when he was drinking a whole litre of fruit juice a day, diluted three parts to one with water. So he was drinking four litres of fluid a day. That That uh, is one of the key signs. Leading by the hand is another sign where they don't seem to be able to use their own fingers to operate switches or 
or do things. They try to get another person to do it for them by taking hold of their hand and pushing their hand towards whatever they want to to be operated. So so those were two signs that were already there when he was about three years old. Was it in a way a relief to have a diagnosis or was that diagnosis in itself? uh... It was a relief for a, a rather strange reason, which was I think some medics are not very good at coaching bad news correctly and what happened was the consultant who eventually went to see said that he might have fragile X and um, I thought it was something minor because she just said it in a kind of throwaway sentence and then carried on talking about other things so it was early days of internet searches I couldn't do them myself but I asked my brother-in-law to do it and then there was this horrendous family reaction and um, I was just sent printouts of the worst-case scenario for a child with Fragile X, which essentially was very, very bad prognosis, um, possible death before reaching the end of their teens. So when it turned out to be autism, and I realised that, you know, he wasn't going to die young and lose all his faculties, which was the other worst-case scenario presented, it was a relief, but probably for the wrong reasons. I should say that Fragile X these days doesn't necessarily result in, in uh, early death or loss of faculties in the way that the internet suggested. It was a lesson in not believing everything that you read on the internet too. So, so knowing what you know now, what is the best advice you could have given yourself at that point when you first had a diagnosis? I don't think that it came as a particularly difficult time because I already had been dealing with a lot of problems already. Uh, Just having the diagnosis meant that I had a name for what I was dealing with. I had already begun to research the effects of diet and I was very optimistic Uh, throughout my life. I've been a great believer, well, I think, most of my adult life anyway, in turning a crisis into an opportunity. I think I had the right attitude, which was I was going to try my hardest to make things better for you. My route to doing so was to look at how diet could modify some of his symptoms. And the book traces this passage through various attempts to help him in a variety of ways. So it's it's kind of of use to families with similar problems because some of the dietary changes did actually help with things like sleep for instance until he was six and a half I was woken three times a night oh god sleep deprivation can um, be a terrible thing to deal with so gaining control of his diet when I finally separated from his father meant that one of the great benefits was that uh, we could sleep for more than three hours at any one time um, and that was that was helped by taking him off gluten and also cow's milk products it's quite a well-known technique now but at the time it wasn't accepted and Hugh's father didn't approve of it because of his medical training and he didn't want to go down that route until there'd been proper controlled trials as he called them 
um, whereas I was desperate to find some way to to help Hugh and I wasn't prepared to wait and it worked. I got him toilet trained on a gluten-free diet at the age of seven and I know that it was the gluten-free diet that helped because twice that diet was challenged and twice he relapsed almost within days so it's you know, it, it helped with the basics, sleep, toilet training, and general hyperactivity. He calmed down quite a lot. His receptive language improved, all sorts of things. But, you know, the scientists will perhaps say this is anecdotal. Biochemists particularly, though, may support the route that we took. Well, I mean, science or not, it worked for you. And yes. <laughs> uh, how much help was available for a family in your situation from from the outside world as such? Well, we were very lucky uh, living in North Wales. Our local MP had two disabled children. So he and his wife were very supportive of uh, projects and there are still some fantastic projects in North Wales for people with a whole range of disabilities. The local social services were absolutely brilliant and I would recommend that any family with a severely autistic child should enlist their help. They're not going to have their child taken away from them, as some people fear. Um, They they were amazingly supportive and especially once I became a single parent, helped with respite um, and professional uh, respite carers. Bernardo's is another organisation who are absolutely brilliant, very professional, very um, took very detailed notes about how to look after Hugh. And once he was about nine or ten, maybe, um, he used to go to stay for a weekend every month or so to give me some respite. So the help was great. But I did meet someone from Derbyshire who said that they had no support whatsoever. Oh, it's a postcode um, lottery, it isn't Saturday it? Club. It is. It is very much so. And I don't know if the same level of support is available in North Wales as it was when we were growing up. You know, uh, many things have been cut. Benefits have been cut. Services have probably been cut as well. Yeah. Um, this is something that uh, Hugh's sister, Fiannon, um, talks about in her journalism from time to time. Um, okay, we've mentioned uh, Rhiannon. She she is a, a great journalist, uh, uh, Rhiannon Lucy Coslett, if people don't know. Can I ask what life is like as a family unit when you you have one child with, with greater needs as such than the other child? Mm. Well, it's quite well known that the siblings of children with autism tend to uh, suffer from not having much parental attention. The the child, particularly if their autism is severe, tends to uh, use up a lot of the energies and, you know, there's sleep deprivation in the mix as well. You know, it can be very hard for a sibling. Rhiannon was six when he was born, so she had had um, quite a bit of, um, you know, full-on parental attention. Maybe she benefited from having less parental attention because she had a lot of freedom. It was great living in Wales because 
it meant that um, she could roam about. I think she had a catchment area of about half a mile radius with her friends from a very early age. I was amazed to find out how far she got even uh. at the age of nine. Um, so she became very independent, adventurous. She suffered from his tendency to regard everybody's possessions as his own. This this was one of her big problems. Um, he was always taking things, hiding things, breaking things. So that was quite hard for her to deal with. I also didn't put them into earphones when they were listening to music, either of them. Rihanna had a CD player of her own, and uh, Hugh learned to operate the CD player downstairs. So as she said in one of her journalist uh, pieces, she can't remember a time when music wasn't playing in the house. The book actually tracks many of the tastes that Hugh developed. We, we found out quite a bit about Hugh through music, really, um, because That's he was largely non-verbal. Yeah, he, he had a few sentences or phrases he could say with, with his basic needs, which were, you know, wanting a drink of water or wanting to go for a walk. He, he loved walking or rather running everywhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to run everywhere with you. He, he was massively hyperactive for, for, for many years um, and very keen on swimming. So we spent a lot of time at the beach on the on the website. There's a an, uh, the Unbound website. There's an extract where Hugh took off for Ireland actually, and we had to. I and a friend had to catch him before he got out of our reach. Um, <laughs> that uh, it was one of our dramas that we had to deal with. How was writing for you? Did you enjoy that process? I have to say I didn't, and en- en- well, enjoy... I, I liked um, writing the, the, the about the funny things that happened, the things that we could all laugh about, um, especially in retrospect. As he approached his teen years, he developed full-on epilepsy, and things got a lot darker and more difficult during his teens, eventually culminating in him having to go into a wonderful place, actually, full-time care. Um, he he himself was, was not happy and was very bored and very obsessional. Um, I couldn't entertain him anymore. His mum was not enough to yeah. keep, him, keep him occupied when he was at home. So, so reliving all that, that part, the early years were, were fun and the book you will, you will find has got a lot of fun and adventure in it as we, we went along with him rather than, you know, sort of trying to uh, suppress him in yeah. many ways. Um, but by the time I, I got to writing about his teens, I mean, if anything, it was, it was very disturbing and, um, it's quite cathartic as well, though. Can I, I ask you one last thing, Anna? Uh, there's a lot of, you said at the start, there's a lot of assumptions that people make about autism. And it's true that we know a lot more now about autism than we did when when Hugh was born, certainly. Mm-hmm. But I, I sometimes think that the more we know, the less we understand sometimes. You know, you'll hear people say, oh, I think I'm a bit autistic. And I think I don't really know that. Um, that's based on anything other than, you know, just a, something you read in a newspaper. Um, is, it, is it helpful that we know more about autism or, or in, in some ways does it set 
uh, families well, like the, yours the back? Worry, well, the worry is that um, people think they know about autism, and that's another reason why I wrote the book, because rightly so, a very articulate, able group of people with autism has made sure that we know about the positive aspects of it. And it is, you know, in a milder form, um, probably responsible for some of the greatest works of creativity on the planet (laughs) and mathematical thinking and scientific thinking. There was a, a joke made by one of the biochemists that when they were trying to find a control group for some testing they were doing uh, to do with opioids, which is, you know, the theory behind some dietary treatments of autism. Uh, Again, that's in the notes to my book. I put some scientific notes at the back for people who want to know more. Uh, They found that half the biochemists that they tried to use as a control group also had opioids in their urine. Really? (laughs) A sign of... um, uh, casein intolerance or gluten intolerance. So this dietary aspect of autism certainly, I feel, needs more exposure because some writers um, have dismissed uh, the dietary treatment as quackery, um, and it's absolute rubbish uh, that they should dismiss it in that way. It doesn't mean that autism can be cured by diet, but you can modify it, as most sensible people would realise that, you know, certain foods do make children hyperactive, for example. Um, But it's deeper than that. There there are other new movements um, which I think deserve uh, a higher profile. And uh, one of my deepest concerns is B12 deficiency seems to be implicated. When I was pregnant with I had been a non-meat-eating person for 10 years. Now, B12 is mainly found in animal products. Uh, My problem was that I don't like milk, and I wasn't eating butter and uh, and not a lot of yogurt. So my B12 levels would have been very low during pregnancy, and my reserves, uh, they tend to run out apparently after about four years of veganism, for example. Now, we've got this huge rise, rightly so, of awareness uh, to do with meat-eating and what have you, but I can't emphasise strongly enough that people who want to go down that dietary route, they really must take B12 supplements because there isn't enough in yeast-based products to compensate for a lack of, um, of it in meat or dairy. So... That's my most recent finding, and I think it would help um, if everybody knew about this. It might help with the vaccination fears that people have. It it could help with preventing future cases of autism if the B12 factor is a very important aspect. But there are many, many other possible causes. This is just one. Um, I was diagnosed with B12 deficiency uh, about three years ago, I've recovered. There are many causes of it. Um, my diet has changed considerably, so it's not. It wasn't a dietary cause. It was um, possibly um, hydrocortisone injectors. So that's where people's awareness could improve. I do think that they tend to think that oh, it's just another way of thinking or or existing or. Uh, not being very sociable, what have you. And I think severe autism is a whole different ballgame. And 
I wanted to show what it was like without it becoming a kind of, I don't know, um, misery fest, because it certainly wasn't. It certainly wasn't. And, you know, as I said at the beginning of the book, we have learned so much from having here in the family. And our understanding has, you know, um, increased in so many different ways. We'd be different people if we hadn't uh, brought him up. And obviously, I still see him every week. um, And I'm glad to say that he has found some contentment where he is and he's still developing i'd really love some help with developing his language further um i wish some speech therapists would specialize particularly in in improving how people with autism can communicate so so tell me anna where can people find out more about helping your book become a reality um, well, I mean, well, it is a reality. The Unbound, but, but... It, it, well, it is a reality. Uh, well, it's it's not published yet. Um, I've got lots of supporters, and I'd really like more people to pledge their £10, or you can buy, you know, two copies or whatever. There's various offers on the Unbound website. So if you go to the unbound.com website and type in Your Life As I Knew It, you should find it. It's all my name, Anna Coslett, two S's, two T's. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time, Anna. Well, it's been a pleasure. Hello. Sorry to add to this advert break before we let you get on with the rest of this fantastic podcast. But just before that, to let you know that tickets for our International Men's Day Eve special which is happening next week have sold out as have tickets for our show at the stand in newcastle on january the 12th sorry if you missed those but we are back in london for our last show of the year on december the 11th we've just announced that we will be joined by daisy haggard she of psychoville episodes and back to life fame no way yes way indeed and we think tickets for this show would make a rather lovely christmas present so do have a look on our website if you'd like to give the gift of lols this christmas and you can find that at www.standardissuepodcast.com also just to let you know there's more to come from us this week you'll be hearing from the rather excellent comedian jen brister if you tune in for sunday chops on as the name would suggest sunday she'll be talking about her fantastic book the other mother inspired by her column for a rather good website you might have heard of it it's called standard issue make sure you subscribe now if you want to make sure you don't miss that or anything else we ever put out and we are putting out some quality stuff in the next couple of weeks we are joined by consumer expert and lovely human vix layton hi vix hi at least one of those is true at least oh. one of those. Also, I'm joined by... Hello. Hannah and... Oi, oi. Michaela Noonan. <laughs> wow. wow. Oh, gosh. Trouble. I, I, I don't know. I think I'm going to get... Um, I was going to say spanked after work, but... That's, that's what if I walked into? Fix. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's November and it's Christmas soon. Tell us about finding a bargain. Are there bargains to be found? Well, it's not gone away, Black Friday, is it? And it's... Arguably, it's it reached like peak a couple of years ago, but I think a lot of the big shops are quite scared to not do it because consumers now expect this big Black Friday saving. Mm-hmm. But 
It's exactly the same principles as normal shopping. It's just know what you want. Don't buy shit that you don't need because you get excited by the deal and actually look at the deal properly. So if you are going to indulge in Black Friday, Cyber Monday, and it's started already now, we're already seeing like black label sales. They kind of lost sight of it being a bit of a weekend. But um, yeah, just have a think about what you want now. Basically, do you need anything? And I think they're going to struggle this year because of Brexit and because people are scared to buy anything at the moment. I need a thing. I need an oven. Yes, that is something that you could probably get a decent deal on on a Black Friday. So whereabouts? Someone stop Hannah trying to boil a pizza. (laughs) (laughs) Are there there things like ovens, for example, that you can actually get like a decent deal on? Yeah, have a little look around and see which brands are actually good because they'll give you the deepest discounts on the ones that are a bit more rubbish. Like if you haven't heard of the brand, give it a Google and just check that it's not going to set your house on fire. So I I got bought budget earpods by my husband for my birthday because they're a mint green and they haven't worked a day since he got them and I was like did you check the reviews Reese? he's normally quite diligent and he no his head got turned by the peppermint green colour because he thought that that's what I would like now I think after 10 years together I've started to bleed into him with my behaviour not out of your ears though yeah but they they suck (laughs) they suck and all the reviews said these were going to be balls can you get holidays in the black friday-ness that is a good question everybody will just label their normal discounts as black friday and that's the thing so and it's one of those things like because it's the same like last minute and expedia i once bought a trip to thailand because it looked cheap i was like oh wow 700 pound i know thailand it's exotic that's amazing but then when i went through a normal travel agent to just double check that's just what the prices are at that time of year. And I think we're all at risk for, again, not really being aware of what things normally cost. Like, I don't know what an oven would normally cost. Well, so, you see... Have you I, been doing your research? I had it. Well, and by research, I mean, I just, like, went to Argos and then to Curry's. The point is, if it doesn't include delivery and fitting, then it's not really worth the money of it being cheaper. So, yes, I have done a bit of research. Yeah, but Argos and Curry's, they're your, like, your big tickets. They will discount a few And if they take your old oven away items. as well, bingo. People don't think like this. The amount of mates I've had that are like, they've just left the old one here. It's like... Did you did you ask them to take yeah. it away? Like not enough people do any research, and that Ikea. is the big problem. So, <laughs> Ikea will not Ikea. take your stuff away. No. Yeah. Let's, let's not let's not ignite no. the let's Ikea rage. Stop no, down that stuff. Just while we're on the subject, I believe that John Lewis will like price match all things, right? Yeah. So just never spend any money at Curry's PC World <laughs> if you can avoid it. Just say to John Lewis, it costs this much over there, and give them your money instead. Fancy John Lewis living. Never knowingly undersold. There you go. Yeah. And, and don't make you cry in store, unlike <laughs> the people at Curry's PC World in Stratford Westfield. Just saying. <laughs> it's nice that you're over that, though. <laughs> but yeah, you're absolutely right. Like, look out for price matching stuff because you do get the benefit of places like John Lewis of their returns policy. But also check that because it's not always true. Like, if you buy things that are sort of X shop floor, for example, you don't necessarily get the same things as you would if you bought it new so you've got to check your small print what i'm getting from this is you need to do your homework yes and if you're not prepared to do it then you're probably not going to get you don't deserve stuff but it's just 
every I don't want to do my homework though. You've already, I, you've done, already it. done it. You've done it. You're no, but I mean, just in general, I don't want to do my homework. I don't want. You to... love homework. No, I, I do. You love I, I love learning stuff. Work is your favourite word. I don't like shopping. So anything that makes shopping like even more stressful than shopping already is. Yeah, there are little hacks you can do. Like some shops will give you a really good deal. Like Ted Baker last year had their like flagship coats, but they only had a certain amount of each size. Once they're gone, they're gone. So they're all the like teeny tiny sizes so I just bought one in the teeny tiny size and then just took it back and got it returned when Black Friday was over I've done that so if there's clothes that are from the standard range that aren't like they've dredged down from the back of the cupboard what was the benefit of doing that it's basically if you buy something at that price when you return it you just get a direct swap so if you're like okay I want that and and the offer is on now but they don't have it in my size just buy it in the wrong size and then exchange it, and you won't have to pay for the them. right size. Yeah, yeah and then you won't. But where have are you going to gonna pay get the right money. size from if they didn't have from it? From them when they bring it back afterwards. Yeah, because they, they don't restrict wanna... it. They're, they're creating a demand by yeah. having a few that you can oh, get in the okay. sale, yeah. but there are only a certain number of certain sizes. Week after Black Friday, all the sizes mysteriously back. Yeah, so. I've done that. Play the loads. man, Hannah. Play Do the it. man. Yeah. Buy your cooker in the wrong size. <laughs> <laughs> Do you yeah. know what? I will end up doing that. <laughs> But with things like dynamic baskets as well, occasionally, like where you put things in your basket and they stay there. Mm. Um, If you do your shopping ahead of the sales, it will automatically update the price. And then you can take off all the ones that haven't got a discount on them. So it keeps you focused. Are you laughing at my emphatic mm. But Mm. it was in an empty cup, so it sounded like you were in a cave. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. Yeah, Jen's creating her own sound effects. (laughs) So, Vix, what I'd like to know, please, is... Skippy, Jen's fallen down the well. (laughs) So, Vix, obviously, we are living in... (laughs) Oh, you could tell us the last session of the day, can't you? (laughs) For the benefit of the listener, making us spat her tea out. Everything that just happened then was a good Brexit. Yeah, analogy. good segue. Nobody knew what was going on, and that is exactly the case for Brexit and retail. There were tears, there was laughter, there was, there was spitting. A, a bit of mess. Yeah. <laughs> no fix. Brexit. Brexit, yeah. And there's a lot of chat about are people buying things, aren't people buying things. Is there any kind of like retail benefit in what's going on at the moment, or has it just all gone to shit like everything else? Well, in theory, yes. For things like cars, because my day job, I, I um, work at a car comparison site. They are doing everything they can to encourage people. With big purchases like that, they want people locked in and buying them. And it's a scary time. You don't want to commit to anything. And people are, you know, I can't say they're wrong to not, particularly if you're going to go on like credit or if you're looking long-term, I can't say people are wrong to avoid spending what they don't have to spend. So if there's nothing wrong with the car that you're in or the jumper that you're wearing, don't buy on credit to get that because we don't know what's going to happen over the next few years. And I think that's the only certainty in Brexit. You simply do not know. Like, from a consumer point of view, theoretically, you won't get the same rights that the EU afforded you for your consumer issues. So there's still a lot of conversation about that. Like, with flights, they've said you will still get the same like the Uh same delay rights but in terms of if you buy something from abroad for example for EU at the moment you're protected and you've got all the same legal rights you'd have in the UK even though you've bought from abroad once the EU isn't part of our lives anymore that might not be true and a lot of people do buy online they buy from the US and a lot of retailers operate entirely from the US so the impact of that is if they can't import things for the same rate with the same mates rates that we've got with the other EU countries 
where's that margin going to go? They either cut their margins or they load the prices. So everything could potentially be more expensive. Custom charges as well, I guess. Yep, exactly. Customs and tax, bringing things in. One one good bit, though, we might get duty-free back <laughs> in a more meaningful way. Yay! Yay. Oh, duty-free, how was, did you know? I was looking for one benefit, and that's all I could find. <laughs> Um, and mobile roaming as well. We don't yes. know what's going to happen with that. Yeah. I wondered if you could galvanise an entire generation to vote on the basis that they won't be able to Instagram their holidays for free anymore. <laughs> well, you know, we that is shit getting real, isn't it, for teenagers? Well, I don't know. You've, you've got to make it mean something to them. Yeah, and well, that is the kind of shit that... Th- that whole thing about Snapchat streaks that we were talking to Sarah Raphael and Noma Shimada about a few weeks ago... Like, kids get really upset if they're Snapchat. If they can't Snapchat, <laughs> they get upset. And data is so expensive yeah. when you're outside of your EU limits. If you're thinking that we might have to then pay, like, loads of taxes or whatever on stuff from outside the EU, is there not more benefit in buying something now? Why is there less benefit in buying something now? Well, if you need it, is I guess, is the thing. Like, can you last is it you'd like it or is it this is going to be useful to you in the next well, few should years be the role of all things really, it though, should but it, it isn't always is it i don't know if you've seen this klarna thing yes which i don't understand which is soft peddling credits yeah to can you explain that a little bit in so case people... yeah loads of the online clothing shops now are offering this very pink very millennial fluffy version of a store card yeah saying, oh, you know, you, you have it for 30 days and pay at the end, but you're subject to the same credit restrictions that you would be were at an actual high street credit card. So what people don't realise, it's all very soft language as well. So it's like, oh, you missed your payment date. Here's an extension of seven days, but that's marked your credit file forever. And there's soft credit checks to check, you know, if you're actually allowed to have them. So all these young people are just ruining their credit records, thinking they've just got this line of, like, almost mummy and daddy level credit mm. with some of the big ones. So it's like ASOS, Misguided, they're all doing oh, it. It's, it's on all of the... I've seen it, yeah, absolutely everywhere. Shoving thought, it down, yeah, just shoving it down the throats of, like, Instagram influencers mm. as it, well. It does feel very much like when I went to the bank in my after my first term at university and said I don't have any money and they said oh can you ask your mum and dad I said not really they'll be quite angry (laughs) (laughs) already and said oh maybe you should get a credit card yeah (laughs) and I was like is that a good idea if I don't have any money they're like just for emergencies just for emergencies hello shoes yeah yeah I got a free popcorn maker from Barclay Card in my first year for signing did you make much use of that no what I will say about money though from what little I understand about economics about what you're saying about Brexit Mm. is if you can't afford stuff obviously don't buy it yeah but if you can afford stuff it's actually quite good that money is circulating around in the economy yeah yeah I mean, it's that's why they could have really yeah. fixed a lot of Greece's problems by rather than giving the money to the bank, giving it to the individuals and saying, as long as you will buy a TV with it, which seems ridiculous, but would actually get that money back. Well, that's what they should have. That, that's what they could have done here. But uh, that's probably quite a left wing way of looking at the situation. And yeah, why not have poor people die instead? Yeah. But it's nice that people are thinking like this, though. And it's nice to have these conversations because you've just got to be aware then nobody knows anything and I think that's one that's another thing of the troubles like I was doing a bit of research before I came in to see if there was anything hard and fast that I could say for sure and there isn't 
So when so you've there are when, no known silver no, linings to no, apart from like I said, duty free. Anyone? Anyone? Uh, <laughs> we, oh, hang on, Vix. What about the blue passport? What about the nice new fifty p? I just can't afford to go on holiday anymore because the exchange rate is so bad. So um, well, exactly. Yeah. We might need to start using fifty p's again, though. You know, I, I wouldn't have any big purchases. Get everything out in cash. Know what you're spending. What a way to end this happy chat about. Um, Christmas. Right, so top tips for <laughs> making the most of Black Friday. Basically what I'm hearing is do your research. Yeah, but literally anything that. else fix. Um sign ups and newsletters so you get first notification when things are going into sale. If you have some shops you know you're gonna spend in, sign up for the accounts a little while before because otherwise the pressure of the increased traffic on the website might mean that you don't get the stuff that you want because you're too busy putting your address and your email address in and being told that your username's already been used or remembering your password so little bits of housekeeping just to make sure that you're ready don't buy what you don't need check it's a real deal you can sign up to a service called Alerta which is quite fun and it lets you track the price of things so they did something last week about how Prosecco in Tesco's was the cheapest it had ever been so you just tell them what you want and it just lets you know when the prices go up and down so that if you start doing that now that should give you a sense of how good the deals are and the things that you actually want and that works for white goods kitchen stuff clothes nuts that are curiously expensive because i wanted to buy some peanuts for the office yesterday they cost about 10 pound a bag when did that happen peanuts nuts are really expensive expensive yeah peanuts aren't so i'm sick of cakes in the office so i thought i'll get some savory stuff went to the nut section i was like i'm not a millionaire i'm not buying this so did you go to marks and spencer's um it's waitrose that's a mental if you go to the world food aisle same nuts cheaper price there we go. That's another little tip for you. Yeah, that's, that's a Jack Monroe good, one, that is. It's a good baking tip, yeah. And spices. You can buy them in bigger quantities and much, much cheaper. Oh, like the coconut milk. Yeah. Always cheaper Always if you go cheaper. to the world food section. Yeah. Oh, Jen, I went to this weird shop. Here's some fun things to end on. I went to this <laughs> weird shop that's next to Tesco. Yeah. That's like a cash and carry, but it lets ordinary members of the public in, right? And when was I got my dad there... there? No, but there was a there was a there was a huge block of cheese that I could barely carry, and I almost bought it. But you tried so carrying I could it. Give some to you <laughs> because it made me remember your but, father and yeah. the cheese. What? Yeah. What happened? My dad had his own business, and so he opened. It was nothing to do with the catering industry. I hasten to add, but because <laughs> he had his own business, he could open up a cash and carry account. So he did, and we used to go to the cash and carry to buy stuff because it was obviously cheaper uh, he would buy like a huge industrial sized yeah. block of cheese. this block of cheese that I picked up was £60 I mean I was a child yeah. so maybe but I feel like it was that big you could kill an intruder with oh, it oh absolutely yeah. yeah no it was heavy so they had to like so my parents had to cut <laughs> bits off it to then store as sort of normal sized cheese chunks <laughs> so that we could still access it yeah. because the actual the parent block of cheese, if you will, was too big Door for any of us to carry. See, post-Brexit, we can start using that as a currency. Yeah. Buy a big cheese at Cash and Carry, start selling it off in chunks. Fortunately, big cheese eaters in the big office cheese. family, so never, never went out of date. Always got for it. Quickly. I could always tell when my mum was on a period, because I'd go to make myself a sandwich and there'd be tooth marks in the cheese. <laughs> Didn't she even smooth them out? No, nope, just, just that's just, the just, secret. Just jumped on it. Couldn't have done that if she'd been to the cash and carry. No, no, no. way you're getting your mouth around that. Massive. Hang on, Hannah. Is this cheese the reason that you're building your upper body strength? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As well as being a consumer expert, 
You're doing something else, aren't you, next week? Yeah, I'm putting on a comedy night next week. I noticed that there weren't enough nights that were all about women on the open mic comedy circuit, so I set one up myself. So um, it's my third one, and um, I'm really excited about it, so yeah. So where can we find you if we want to know more about you doing comedy and indeed consumer expertise? Yeah, Twitter, you get you get all of that in one package. Um, so yeah, it's um, at PRVix on Twitter, or I've got my own Facebook fan page for my comedy oh my i'd like to to note for the listeners that vix and i are both in tiger print Mm. sweaters but as an indication of our personality (laughs) mine is almost anatomically correct (laughs) and vix is sparkly very much not (laughs) lovely just the right side of pat butcher yeah um my boss described it as um if i worked in a bank and was going on a christmas lunch so (laughs) thanks phil (laughs) (laughs) On that bookshelf. <laughs> Fix, thank you very much. Thank you for having me, as ever. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we win by knockout as we discuss all things women's sport. Or KO, if you prefer. I don't know. The focus of last week really was the England women's team and I'm going to start with a little bit on equal pay because some of the England players last week had a bit to say about that in light of the Matildas, the Australian women's team, being given equal pay and benefits to their male counterparts. The aptly named Beth England, see what I did there, said it was an ongoing battle and added that I think any women's footballer wants to be respected and equal to their male counterparts. I think any woman wants to be respected and equal to her male counterparts. But yeah, absolutely, fair point. And Jordan Nobbs added to that, when you see other nations doing it, of course we want to carry on that progression. England added, quite fairly, we have been better than the men, the men's England team, that is. So why are we not on the same? I mean, I've said it before and I'll just continue to keep saying it, but it's totally unacceptable that the England women's team are not being paid the same as the men. And I think when you see countries like Australia taking that step, I find it really, really bad that that we're not taking that step as well. Again, I've said it before, the domestic league is, is a different beast, but for international duty, you're literally asking them to do the same job, which is to represent their country in a game of football, and you should be paying them the same amount. It's completely perverse that the men are paid so much in the domestic league that they can afford to literally give their England fees away to charity and yet the women are not paid the same amount. Obviously great that they're giving money to charity, I'm not knocking that, I just think if they can afford to give it away, could you not maybe afford to pay them a little less and the women a little bit more to sort of redress that balance it's it's a bit balmy isn't it anyway don't let this cloud your judgment on that last bit um but the england women's team did in fact lose to germany on saturday 2-1 thanks to a 90th minute goal by the german team and that was in front of a record-breaking crowd of 77,768 it's not a record for a women's football match in the uk because that was in the Olympics in 2012 I think between Japan and the US the tickets did sell out so there should have been more than that but bad weather apparently has sort of prevented some of the people from turning up and in fact I was one of those people I was supposed to be there but my mate's baby was poorly so I missed it but it looked like an absolutely incredible atmosphere and the good news is I am off to the North London Derby on Sunday and that is at White Hart Lane which I'm not going to lie to you is an infinitely nicer stadium than Wembley. What I will say about that is this is just me 
hypothesising, but I guess it's kind of swings and roundabouts. When the tickets are £15, obviously they're more likely to sell out because they're cheap, they're affordable, people can go, they can take their kids and that's great. That's absolutely what you want. But then on the other hand, if you've only paid 15 quid for a ticket, maybe, you know, if the weather's a bit shit, you're feeling a bit more like, eh, maybe I just won't go. Maybe I'll stay here or it's warm instead. Moving on to news from boxing, hence the intro. Nicola Adams has announced her retirement from boxing at the age of 37. She said the decision came due to fears for her eyesight. That's after she taught a pupil in her last fight, which was against Maria Salinas in September. In an open letter to the Yorkshire Evening Post, which is her one-time local rag, and she credited the paper with huge support for her career over the years, she said she was honoured to have represented Great Britain at the London and Rio Olympics, in which she became the first Brit since Harry Mallon in 1924 to have retained an Olympic boxing title. But, she said, it's not without taking its toll on my body. Aside from the expected aches and pains, I've been advised that any further impact to my eye would most likely lead to irreparable damage and permanent vision loss. So it's really sad to hear that she's retiring, but what a pioneer and also a real icon in the LGBTQ plus community. She's won gold medals at the Olympics, at the Commonwealth Games, the World Championships, the European Championships, the EU Championships, the European Games and the WBO flyweight title. Nicola Adams, we will miss you and we salute you very much. That is all for me and my snotty nose this week. Any thoughts on any of this? Give me a shout. I am on Twitter at Inspiragen and I like people who tweet nice things. Thank you. Until next time. Thanks for listening. Do you know what is super helpful? It is super helpful if you pop over to iTunes and rate and review us. Oh, and while you're there, if you're not already subscribed, do that too. Thanks very much. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disaster. Dunleavy, what disaster has befallen us this week? Well, the first disaster that's befallen us this week is I forgot my fucking notebook. I know, I know. But fortunately, this film has left such an indelible mark on me. This week, we watched Your Choice, 1978 classic. I'm putting quote marks around, well, basically everything I've said so far, um, to accommodate for the fact that The Swarm is generally accepted to be one of the worst disaster films ever made. And together with Beyond the Poseidon Adventure, which was released around the same time, late 70s, was considered the films that killed the disaster movie genre until it was revived in the 90s. Yeah, on the flip side, choosing The Swarm is the best decision I've ever made. Yeah, (laughs) there you go. (laughs) Box office failure, I mean, generally regarded to be a proper B-movie, no pun intended. And in a lot of ways, it did very much feel like... Have you guys ever seen The Blob? No. I have seen the advert for The Blob because it's in the film Grease. Don't walk, run from the strawberry jam that's going to chase you down. I mean, I was terrified when I watched it because I'm an idiot. (laughs) Oh, I was an idiot when I was small. Still an idiot, just not small anymore. And it's that kind of small-town America doesn't know what's coming for it. It's arguably got the most lauded cast for such a terrible film that I've ever seen. There are four people who have Oscars in this film. Four. Fuck off. Count them. Not, yeah. not for this film, yeah, and that's worth noting. But also, Two of them had Oscars before. Two of them 
won Oscars subsequently. Nobody got an Oscar for this film. But four Oscar winners in this. Mm-hmm. Michael Caine, Henry Fonda, Olivia de Havilland and Ben Johnson all have Oscars. It also has Catherine Ross, who has been Oscar nominated. Michael Caine ever having won an Oscar is really questionable, though. He has. I know, but like what I mean is it makes no sense to me. He is one of the worst actors um, how can you say that? In this film, he shouts the facts. It's okay. one of my favourite things well, I've ever seen. Let's, let's, he also has the line, that. we've been waging war with insects for 15 years. I knew it would come to this, but I never thought it would be the bees. But they've always been our friends. friends. <laughs> I actually sent that as a message to these guys in capital letters. <laughs> but they've always been our friends. Mm. But it's literally when he's shouting bee facts. If there's no honeybees, there will be a 73% drop. It's just glorious. It is amazing that whenever he's got to mention something to do with a bee, he goes from like kind of normal Michael Caine in Susan chat to full on yelling, fully yelling bee facts. Yeah. Mm. So, last bit of background facts for you. This did have an enormous budget, apparently, for its time, which it translated into an 11% score on Rotten Tomatoes, which is yeah. outrageously low. But again, on the flip side, low. Michael Caine used his feet to buy a house. So, you know. Yeah, he talks about this film a lot. And actually, this film has some cult following because it is a film that Michael Caine has openly said, you know, I did the, I did it for the money. And I can only assume the same will be said for Catherine Ross and for Fonda and for all of those people. The only person that I actually think just did it for the role in it is Slim Pickens, who, you know, my favourite film, Con Air, which you guys must have seen. Yes. You know yeah. in it, you get this feeling that, that everybody had a, a meeting in production and Nicolas Cage wasn't at it. And at this meeting in production, they all just went, let's just play this for laughs. Let's just make this a comedy. This is a romp. <laughs> yeah, let's just be funny. And then Nicolas Cage turned up and he behaves it's like he's in an action film. Mm. Well, everybody in this has decided to, like, they had a meeting that said, let's be happy. Let's, like, just do shouting. Let's just get through this, get the money and get to the end of it. And I don't think Slim Pickens was in that meeting because I want to say when he turns up, and picks up the body of his dead son. He's actually really good. Yeah, it's actually really the good. best moment in this film by a country mile. It actually, he was so good in that that I actually had to pause it and go and watch him die in um, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, which is the other, well, that's one of three great things he did. The other great thing is him riding the uh, thingy in Doctor Strangelove. Have you never seen Doctor Strangelove? I have. It's Slim Pickens at the end who's on top of the, the missile. Oh, like shaking his hat. <laughs> like he's riding a bull. Like he's riding a bull. <laughs> apparently Kubrick made him do that a hundred times, which is apparently quite low for Kubrick. Oh, right, okay. as it goes. But yeah, I do want to say that um, regardless of everything else we say, I think Slim Pickens is great in this. Director Erwin Allen uh, refused to speak about it and actually left an interview when someone brought it up. The Swarm? Mm-hmm. So, the plot. We're in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> the what? <laughs> <laughs> We're in Texas. And this really massive swarm of Africanized bees is coming for a town which, in a beautiful moment of coincidence, is having a flower festival at the weekend. What could possibly go wrong? I mean, they might as well have been having a rub cover yourselves in jab. Everybody stand in the street and eat three ice creams festival. That was my favourite festival. (laughs) I'd just like to stop you there, Hannah. We don't like to call them Africanized bees anymore. No. What do we like to call them, We Mickey? call them resistant bees. Thank you. But then that, I love that that facade lasts for a whole, like, yeah. ten minutes. And then later, <laughs> they just drop the bees bit. They just keep referring to them as Africans, which is <laughs> yeah. racially, racially dubious. Yeah. 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 
it starts off quite mild. You know, there's just like a family having a picnic and the parents get stung to death, which I say quite mild. But given that we then have a town wiped out, a, a train crashes, and then the entire of Houston is wiped out in, in some sort of... The 32,000 people died in Houston. There's a nuclear explosion, a nuclear Hannah. Explosion. It's just insane. <laughs> forgotten that? It's quite... It's a pretty... You know the body count is is high and it it's high. it's quite dark. It's it's pretty harsh, isn't it? Everyone dies <laughs> in slow motion. Whenever anyone gets beat to death, it's always in slow motion. So I was chatting to my friend Dave, who loves a, a B movie, and I said, "Dave, Peter Young, have you ever seen 1978 Michael Caine vehicle, The Swarm?" Here's a little quote: "Get inside! Don't you understand? The killer bees are coming." Cut to children getting beat to death in slow motion on the school steps. Meanwhile, she's standing outside of the street shouting that. Get inside, everyone. Yeah. The bees are very compliant. They don't go through doors. Like, if a door's open, they're not that interested in just, like, following the open door. If you, like, smash a window, oh, they're fucking well in there. But if yeah. the door is open, they're not that fussed. Like vampires. You have to yeah. invite them in. <laughs> I like it when um, Paul, the young boy who was on the picnic with his mum and dad, who, who interacted as if they've only just met as opposed mm. to created the child together. Slash really hated each other. Like each Bad other. chemistry. I'm thirsty. Fetch the thermos, Paul. That's about as emotional as it gets. And then he's sat in that car to save himself from the bees and it looks like someone is just chucking bucketfuls and <laughs> these at the windscreen I was absolutely pissing my side laughing and then Dave sent me this story there was a story in the news about 10 years ago where a guy got stung to death by wasps in a field really awful thing unfortunately the final text the guy sent was too funny for us to ignore his final text was the wasps have got me Paul <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing to recommend this film apart from how shonky it is. It's amazing, it's I so it. amazingly shonky. Plots make no narrative sense. There's this really weird subplot in which Olivia de Havilland is being romanced by two men at the same time, one of which is Ben Johnson. And when they're first evacuated, and I literally just cried laughing at this, they get evacuated from the town because the town's been overrun by bees, so everyone who didn't die is put on a train, which is... The effects are appalling. When the train crashes and they're rolling down the hill, you can see people actually lining up to jump out of the window to make it look like they fell out of the window, which is just so great. But anyway, when they first get on the train, bear this in mind, they've been evacuated with one case each and they're all being shoved on this train. Ben Johnson's character gets out this cushion that's got a board on the top that's a temporary travel car table. And it just amazed me. Fuck, fuck, we're being evacuated. What shall I take? Well, best take the car to travel table. So Ben Johnson is Felix, right? One of the mm-hmm. men wooing her. And he woos her with a line that I think should be more people's Tinder profiles because he says, I'm not too good with words, but I am a retired master mechanic. <laughs> Well, the other guy, Clarence, who's trying to woo her, goes in to see her at the school. And she goes, I can't do the accent, but I'll give it a go. And she goes, well, Clarence, who's looking after the store? <laughs> and I was like, I want to start all sentences that way. Well, Clarence. And there's all these killer bees and they keep wooing her with flowers. I don't think they like her at all. <laughs> there are lots of flowers going it's, on. Honestly, there's so many bits that I just, we actually basically watched this. I don't need my notebook because we just watched this and WhatsApped each other. There's these classic moments where like, everything seems to be recorded 
by something somewhere so people can replay the horror on tape. Mm. And there's about there's at least two occasions in which Michael Caine listens to a recording of what happened. When bees attacked. Basically, right. they buzz for a bit. Yeah. And, yeah. and then you hear this. That's basically it. But there's always this bit in both of them where Michael Caine goes, what's that? Right? And the, there's always a, like a red shirt with him. Right? And he'll go, what's that? And, and they'll go, I don't know. What is that? And you're like, well, considering there's a pack of fucking bees on the loose, mate, I'm guessing it's an oncoming pack of bees. This is, this again taps into <coughs> another one of my favourite lines. The general who is like, oh, that actor, I hope he never works again. He's terrible. He delivers his lines like they're puns. It's crazy. He's emphasis. It's all over the place. Michael Caine's looking on the ground and he goes, what are you looking for? And he goes, well, general, I'm looking for bees. <laughs> <laughs> Where when people have been bitten, because Catherine Ross is a doctor, oh my god, she's not a very good one. She's not a very good doctor, but there is a perfect moment in it again where I lit, I actually spat my tea out when this happened. She's been in hospital uh, because she's been bitten by a bee, and I'll get to my point about hallucinations in a bit. But somebody comes rushing in, and he has a conversation, and then he says, "But where is the doctor?" And she just steps out from behind the screen <laughs> and says, "I'm here." <laughs> And it is so ridiculous. It's like she's been hiding behind the screen, waiting for her cue. But anyway, when they get bitten, they have hallucinations. And the craziest thing about these hallucinations is Michael Caine seems to be able to tell when they're having a hallucination. And when the hallucination stops. Exactly, because when he's talking to Paul, who's the having the boy. hallucination, right, suddenly the hallucination disappears. And Michael Caine looks in the place where the hallucination was, looks back and says, see, I told you it would go. Hannah's not pointed out that the hallucination is always of a, a bee. giant bee. And they just look so sweet. They're big, but furry. There's a really disturbing one where they're in the freezer and it like comes out of his eye. I mean, but that's what happens when you're in love with a bee scientist. <laughs> Um, my favourite line that Ellen... it, that's always been by experience. Yeah, totally. I mean, we've had this chat before, Jen. Oh yeah. And my favourite line from Eleanor is when Paul, sadly, for no no reason we're ever told whatsoever, dies. I think he was on the train. No, no, in the hospital. no. The little boy's in hospital. I think we do oh, get so an explanation. He, he has a relapse. Relapses. because relapses. They had a they have a chat later on. She's like, "What you didn't tell me is that everyone has a relapse because yeah." Know, she's... And he goes, "Well, some people some people get through it." And she goes. Well, they're okay, Art. Some is better than none. But my favourite line is when Paul dies and she turns to Dr. Bradford oh Crane and she just goes, My God, Brad, what good is all that science? <laughs> also, and then she, she goes, I'm so sorry, and hugs him. <laughs> okay. Also, she says, of all the boys, why this boy? He's nothing to do with her. <laughs> Literally nothing. I'd also like to say something about her qualification to be a doctor. When old matey boy, when old matey boy dies trying to make the antidote, and, and his heart has stopped. Henry yeah. Fonda, Henry Fo- yeah. that old guy, Henry fucking Fonda. I don't fucking know. Oscar anyway, Henry Fonda. So his heart stops. So she like fucks off, comes yeah. back with an oxygen mask. Yeah, that is not how it when works. He's dead. When his his heart has stopped, so I'll just see if some oxygen does it for him. Uh, I've got to say, Doctor Walter Crim. Uh, great name there, Henry Fonda. His death, I was like, come on, this is my ironic death moment. Ironic death moment and bad science. Jen and I are going to score on the yeah. on a disaster bingo here. And indeed, we, well, and then he rallies 
and then mm. he sees a massive bee and there dies. Was, there's a great moment, and I don't know why, <laughs> but it made it. me laugh as much as I did, when they all, they all get dressed up for no apparent reason because they're inside in these massive suits, <laughs> right? And they put him in one, and he's in his wheelchair, and they push him in, and he's in this ridiculously massive suit. And you're like, you've just gone into a lab. Why? There's no reason for you to be wearing that. It's just really stupid. Oh, it's, it's his beekeeper suit. Yeah, yeah well, but there's no other bees there. Oh, is this not uh, when they're... Plus, they've all, got their, they've all got their voices up, so bees can okay. fly in there anyway. Well, they're very compliant bees. <laughs> yeah, they are. Um, I'd just like to point out my favourite Dr. Walter Crim line. Hmm, smells like bananas. <laughs> in the context of what? He sniffs the venom. <laughs> When they've collected the venom so that he can make the antidote, he gives Just it a Just giving you a bit of flavour, mm. watcher, for Don't what's going it. on here. Henry goddamn Fonda, what were people thinking? Money, I suppose they were thinking, weren't they? Yeah, I think so. And uh, maybe Richard Chamberlain encapsulates this. We've not even got to his character. He's a scientist. Well, he's scient- barely in it. He's yeah, just- he's going to make some poison pellets. He does. They don't work. He dies in a nuclear explosion. Standard stuff. But his first line is, I think you should know I came here reluctantly. And I think that's not just to the the B centre, but also the film. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So in the end, it all sort of ended. You know, the bees were basically... Dragged off to what they thought was a mating call. Basically, the bees just wanted to get sexy, and they worked this out. So, is that the point of it all? Yeah, they've been yeah. they've been oh, attracted by this. an alarm that sounds like "let's go at it." Yeah, and that's why they appear. It's always sex, isn't it? Always and then sex. by the flowers and the ice creams and yeah. you know the dustbins, the dustbins, and <laughs> all of, all of that stuff. <laughs> And the people jumping through the windows. Yeah, Paul Paul deserved to die. What a dick. He really was a prick. What I didn't understand was, none of them looked like, none of them looked that mash-up, did they? After they got stung to death. You'd think it'd be a bit grosser than it was. They all looked very kind of like, just... Oh, yeah, you think they'd right. have bubbly face. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's because no, they'd anyway. spent all their budget on fire. They clearly they had a again. massive fire budget. Before we get to the bingo, I think we should all say, you know, just up the tension somewhat, we should all say what it is that we are going to pick should we win. I So what I would say is that may create tension, but also there, there's like potentially an incentive there to either go, all right, you can have that or not. Depending yeah, OK, on... well, then we'll hear what we said. I am going to pick in an attempt to not have to watch Titanic... I am going to pick A Night to Remember. It's like a 1950s film, which is apparently the best film and the most accurate film about the sinking of the Titanic. Okay. We're still going to have to watch Titanic. No, we're not fucking watching Titanic. (laughs) If I win, which I I know I won't. Please don't say Titanic. If I win, (laughs) I'm going to insist we watch Titanic twice. (laughs) 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 No, I will pick Airplane. My choice is... On the basis that I was thinking about this the other day, I'd quite like to hear that song by Jimmy Page and P. Diddy again. So I choose Godzilla, the 90s remake. I've never okay. seen that. Neither yeah, I've seen I. it. I went to the cinema to see it. Did you? And Kashmir is Oh, hang on. Is, is that the one that's got a Jamiroquai song? It does also right. have a Jamiroquai yeah, song in then it. Maybe I have seen it. I hate Jamie Rockwee. You can twine that. I hate him. Well... I hate him. Sorry, so, mate. I hope I hope you do and don't win. <laughs> I'm confused. Okay. What, what I've definitely got is... I'm not sure I've got anything. Cassandra ignored. I have. Michael Caine kept saying for ages, you know, the fucking bees! 
<laughs> been following the bees in my van. Yeah. Local radio reports. I'm going to go with what the fuck is that font because that font was weird. So I think I've got four. That's bad out of 16. I don't think I've done much better. I've got definitely got ironic death. Uh, and it was it was a lovely example of it. And I have got nature, you cruel mistress, I guess, with the bees. Um, mid-disaster punch-up. There's a lot of sort of tussling, but there's mm, no tension. actual mm. there's no actual punches thrown. Of, like men with their fucking handbags out, innit? And I've got, hang on, haven't we already seen this guy in a disaster film? Richard Chamberlain is our man of disaster so far. But apart from that, I think I think I've got three. Farewell, major landmark. I mean, Houston goes, but I don't. I don't think there's a like an Empire State Building no, or anything. No. So I'm going with three. I was going to add one, but I decided not to because I don't think it will benefit me in any way, shape, or form in the future. Which was going to be sorry. How many children have you killed off? Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't think like it was a lot, wasn't it? It's quite dark. Um, you I, could have added gratuitous eating of sunflower seeds for no discernible reason. <laughs> But I think that would have been quite specific to this film. Um, I suppose I could, I, right, I could chance my Fetch arm. Fetch me my travel card table. <laughs> I could chance my arm at a Brexit analogy. Okay. We've, like, created a monster by fucking over the bees and now they're wreaking their havoc slash revenge on us. How do you feel? I feel that's quite thin. I think it's a thin... An analogy, okay, but um, I think uh, you know a Brexit analogy could just be everything's gone to shit. I mean, I say that every week. Well, you've got a, a, a bona fide decent one every single week, haven't you? I wish that guy was the actual pre- president. I mean, I don't know if I do. Is there a president in it? Yeah, there is a president in it, isn't there? Yeah, actually, I think he would be our president. He gives all the control to pre- to Crane, yeah, which I says, thought was yeah, that's, that's odd. right. He does, yeah. yeah. Okay, and then he takes it back again. Yeah, <laughs> I mean. Michael Caine could almost have a piss poor English accent, but fine. Uh-huh. Um, there's no helicopters, I don't think. Oh no, there's loads of helicopters. Loads of helicopters. Yeah, there's loads of helicopters, and some of them get taken down by fucking bees, don't they? Yep. Okay, right. Um, an event. I actually <laughs> messaged you and said, Jen, there are a lot of helicopters in this. I'm oh, sorry, I missed that. Uh, an event that is too important to cancel the flower show. Yeah, I think Jen's got this I in think the she's bag. Won. Provably bad science. Absolutely. There's no weather geeks. There are a lot of bee geeks. <laughs> bees aren't weather, although they do come in a storm of bees. Can you smell burning? I certainly can. It's a log with lots of bees on it. And then, latterly, it's Houston. Yeah. Um, there is definitely a sobbing child. There's quite a few. Then they die. I think I've won. I think you have won. Um, so Godzilla it is. Yeah. We're going deeper underground. <laughs> <laughs> Standard issue for all women.